matters that will lead us to uh, the threshold of a, a membership renewal, which is an opportunity for us to reflect and recommit ourselves as members of this local body of Christ to the responsibilities and the, the blessings of life together in the church. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, that the act of renewal, the submitting of a renewal form is largely symbolic. It doesn't formally make you a member or unmake you a member. It's a, it's a collective act of public expression, right, of our love for each other, our commitment to Christ and his people to live by his word. Just a reminder, really, of what we have committed to do as members of Cross Point Fellowship. And so as we go through this next few weeks, we're emphasizing and, and examining the sort of the fundamentals of church life. What, what does it mean to be a member of Christ's universal body? And thereby, what does it mean to be a member of a local expression of that body, a local church? And so last week we talked about what is the church, what makes the church a church. Um, and we talked there about the, the necessary institutional shape of a local church that give boundaries and direction to our discipleship. And that's kind of a sterile clinical way to talk about it, but it's helpful for us to recognize that the church, as Jesus instituted it, has a shape and has some boundaries. And the New Testament, as it unfolds, gives us some, some pictures and some instructions and some models that help us to see how the life of God's people is to be carried out in, uh, in community. We talked last week specifically about the local church as an embassy of the kingdom of God. That is, local churches identify and announce kingdom citizens. It's all of us taking responsibility for one another and recognizing you're a believer, you're a believer, your confession in Christ is true, we regard you and one another as true confessors of Christ. And today, that's the, if that's the, the backdrop or the foundation piece that the local church is identifying uh, followers of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God, today we're going to look at the single most important, fundamental, dare I say obvious, function of these kingdom embassies on earth, namely the weekly gathering for corporate worship. Corporate just meaning pertaining to the body as a whole, not at all denying that our lives as individuals ought to be lives of worship and that we should be engaging in private worship in our own homes and families and in all kinds of different ways. But we're talking here about the Lord's Day weekly gathering, where you are right now. That's what we'll look at today. So tying that into the kingdom embassy thing, where do we find the citizens of heaven assembled as a holy nation in the weekly gathering of a local church? Where do the citizens of heaven perform the rites of citizenship, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, by which we identify who these citizens are in the weekly gathering of the local church? How does Christ, the king of this kingdom, rule over his people? Primarily through the preaching of his word in the weekly gathering of the local church. So the gathering that you're a part of right now and that we continue week after week on the Lord's day 
is the primary place where the church as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven is seen, is visible, and lives out. The structure of the message today, so we're answering the question, why do we gather? Why do we go to church? What is, what is the big deal about all this? The structure of it today is uh, the Bible story and a New Testament plea. So I want to start with a broad biblical storyline that helps us to situate the gathered worship of the church within the broad scope of Scripture, and then we'll look at a particular New Testament passage that makes a plea, an exhortation to us. So the Bible's story. Uh, For this, I'm going to use a framework by Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy. There are different ways, many different ways, really, to sort of organize the storyline of Scripture. So this is not like the right way to do it, but it's one way that I have found really helpful. It's this. The whole story of Scripture could be sort of summarized in this way. It's the story of God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so if you look, wherever you are in the Bible, wherever you land, you can identify with a little bit of effort where, you, where that story or that section of Scripture fits under that framework. Okay, who are God's people in this part of Scripture? And where is God's place in this part of Scripture? And how is God's rule recognized in this part of Scripture? And so it's, it's an organizing principle, if you will. And so with that in mind, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, I'm going to walk you through four big swaths of history, biblical history and even future history, That's a bit of an oxymoron, I apologize, Uh, with this framework, okay? So, at the very beginning of it all, Eden, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Adam and Eve are God's people that he's created. They live in perfect harmony with God and creation in the garden where he's placed them. That's God's place. And they're in perfect harmony with each other, they're in perfect relationship with God, and they're together there living out the call of his people to have dominion, right? Let us make man in our image, let him have dominion. So, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, Eden, under God's rule, he has given them commands. The commands are pretty limited. It's have dominion, right? Take care of things, tend the garden, And by the way, don't eat the fruit from that one tree. We know how well that goes. But that's the framework in the beginning. After the fall, fast forward a while, Israel. We have the covenant family of Abraham, and more even specifically, Jacob's descendants, because Jacob was renamed Israel by the Lord, and it's Israel's children that become the progenitors of the tribes of the nation of Israel. So the people of God are Jacob's descendants. Where's the place? The land of Canaan. That was the promised land. He promised Abraham that he would give to his offspring this land. And so God's people, the descendants of Jacob, are in God's place, the land of Canaan, under God's rule. How? Through the rule of a Davidic king. Obviously, the wheels come off of this because that's the way that this goes. God sets his people up and his people knock it down. That's the storyline of the Bible in another way. But 
the descendants of Jacob are in the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they are under the rule of a Davidic king that God has placed over them to be his representative. God's people, God's place, God's rule. In the age in which we now live, the, we are in the, the church, okay? And so in that place, the, the saints of every nation are who are the people of God. Who are God's people? Those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ of any nation across the globe, right? That's God's people, and they're gathered where? Not in any one location, not in any one particular place. All of God's people all over the world are not gathered in one place. So where is the place that God gathers his people? It's in local churches, and specifically and most formally and obviously in the gathering of local churches, in the main assembly of the church, which, by the way, is what the word church means. It means assembly, ecclesia. So God's people, that is the saints from every nation, are gathered in God's place, that is in these individual local assemblies under God's rule. How does God exercise his rule to the church? Through his word. So when churches gather in a place, under the authority of his word, Christ there is ruling us as his people in this place. So we know that place is underemphasized intentionally in the New Testament. Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, when she started asking about what's the right mountain to worship on, and he said, the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth, right? So it's not the mountain, it's not the particular location that's important anymore, it's the people. But remember, we also talked last week about how the people of God are the house of God. It's the church itself, the people of God, that are the temple now, where Christ dwells by his spirit. So the place is whatever place the people of God are gathered in the name of Christ. So it's not to say that place is unimportant. It's not quite nuanced enough to say that the church is a people. I think it's better to say that the church is a people in a place because it means that we're assembled together in the name of the risen Christ. And so in this age where there is no particular location, there's no particular country, there's no particular national identity by which the people of God are named, Christ rules his people as we place ourselves under his word in local assemblies just like this one and like a number of other ones in Greenville and all over the country and all over the world. And then the final, the fourth and final scene that follows this framework is heaven or really the new heaven and new earth, the final state of things. That will be all God's redeemed people, past, present, future, all living on a renewed earth under the just and peaceful reign of Christ for all eternity. So who are God's people? All those that he has redeemed through faith in Christ. Where is their place? The new heavens and new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's called all kinds of different things in the Bible, but all speak pointing to the same reality under God's rule as he reigns over us as our king. And indeed, we share in his reign which is mind-boggling and topic for another day. 
God's people in God's place under God's rule. And all of that emphasizes the togetherness of his people. It emphasizes the gathering of his people into a place. Whether the place itself is of particular importance, as in the land of Canaan where God promised Israel his descendants would live, or it's whatever place his people happen to be assembled in, which is what I'd say about this age, God rules over his people as they gather in a place together. So, in this age, between Christ's ascension and his return, we, his people, his church, live together under his rule. And, of course, we don't live 100% of the time gathered. The gathering punctuates our lives together, right? The gathering is a rhythm. And so the church gathers for worship and instruction, and then the church scatters for mission. And then it gathers again for worship and instruction, and then it scatters for mission. And that's the way that it goes week in and week out until Jesus decides it's time to come back. Make it so. Come, Lord Jesus. And so that's in terms of the whole Bible's big storyline. I just want you to see that God places a high value on the assembling of his people together in the place that he has designated. Thanks. Thanks, Siri. Found this on the web. And under his rule, however he's expressed it in that time. So there's the Bible story and what I wanted to point you to there. Now, we're going to take that same idea, what is the importance of the gathering of the people of God, and express it, see how it's expressed in a particular New Testament passage, a New Testament plea, if you will. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be in the middle of the chapter. In the book of Hebrews, the author has laid out how Christ's new covenant ministry has set aside the old covenant with its ceremonial laws and its sacrificial system and has himself become both the sin offering and the high priest for his people who represents his people. Now, in the middle of chapter 10, he begins to apply these gospel truths to the lives of his people. So I'm going to read for you verses 19 through 25. Our focus will, will be on the latter couple of verses in this, but I'm going to read to you verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he begins pointing back to what he said before. Therefore, brothers, since we have 
confidence to enter the holy place. Since we have confidence, how to enter the holy place is by the blood of Jesus. Note, please, the basis on which the church gathers is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are only able to enter the holy places because the blood of Jesus has been shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And this rightly demands that just as Christ's work is the basis of our gathering, Christ himself ought to be the focus of our gathering. Our goal, Sunday after Sunday, is to see him, to hear from him, to remember him, to adore him. Jesus is the centerpiece of Christian worship. Because it is only by his finished work by which we have the right to gather at all in his name. So since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, because he went there himself through his own flesh, the curtain of his own flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, so since Jesus himself is now our representative before God the Father, then he gives us three exhortations, let us, and then three let us's, all right? The first one in verse 22 is this, let us draw near, let us draw near. So because we have confidence to enter, let's go. The way has been cleared, the way has been opened, let's go there, let's draw near, this is corporate, this is collective, this is plural. Let us together draw near to God. Let us go to him. In what way? He says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We come to him sincerely. We come to him confidently. We don't need to come cowering, afraid that he's going to smite us. Jesus already got smited for us. He's not going to smite us again. We come confidently with sincere hearts, full assurance of faith. How else do we come? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I think that means that we've been converted. That is, we have come to the place of recognizing our need for God's grace toward us in Christ, and we have trusted in Him and His work. We've repented of our sins. And therefore, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So both speaking of conversion there and our bodies washed with pure water, I think that's a reference to baptism. So our consciences are clean, our hearts are clean because we've been converted to new life in Him by faith. And our bodies washed with pure water, that is we are outwardly, publicly now identifying with the people of God by faith. And in this manner, let's go. We draw near to Him. Let us draw near. Don't shrink back. Don't be afraid. I don't know if there's somebody in the room that needs to hear that exhortation today. Maybe you've come to church, but you're a little worried about what God might think of you, about what others might think of you. You know, it's been kind of a long time since I read the Bible or prayed or, wow, I did some pretty bad stuff this last week, and I'm pretty sure God knows about that, and how's this going to go when I come into with confidence? Full assurance of faith, heart sprinkled clean, bodies washed with pure water. Come on. That's the invitation. Let us draw near. Number two, let us hold fast. Look at verse 23. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That is a statement of the gospel, right? The confession of our hope is Jesus Christ was crucified and raised for sinners. And because we've trusted in him, we have new and lasting life. There's a bare nutshell of our confession. And he's exhorting us here to hold fast to that confession. Why? Why do we need to be reminded to hold fast? Why isn't it not just like, well, since that's the truth now, no big deal, on you go, this will be easy. We're exhorted to hold fast to it because what we naturally will do is drift away from it. We will naturally drift away from a right confession, away from faithfulness. He wouldn't need to exhort us this way if that weren't the case. We are feeble-minded and weak-spirited, and so often we slip and fall into, not just into sin, but into wrong ways of thinking about who God is and how he relates to us through Christ. We forget the gospel. It's that plain. And so we need each other. We need each other's help in this. Even remaining true to Christian doctrine requires the support and encouragement of our brothers and sisters in the faith. He doesn't say, sit at home with your Bible and make sure that your doctrine is really good. He's calling us together. Let's draw near together. Let's hold fast together. Let's consider the very next thing he's going to say, how we in our lives together can help each other in these ways. We need each other's help in holding fast the confession of our hope. And then the third exhortation in verse 24, let us consider. Let us consider. Well, consider what? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, and then emphasizing this, but encouraging one another. We'll talk about the not neglecting thing in a second. But I want you to see those two phrases. Stir up one another to love and good works and encourage one another. Those are very closely related to one another. Encouragement is more than just attaboy. Right? Encouragement is strengthening. So when we're stirring up one another to love and good works... We do that often through encouragement, that is through strengthening one another, through giving each other words of faith and courage and instilling courage in each other as we point one another to God and his word and his promises. So let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and let us encourage one another, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And so clearly he has in mind here the regular rhythms of gathering, the people of God coming together for worship and instruction from his word. So our presence and participation in corporate worship is a mutual encouragement that we provide each other. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, we are not a couple hundred individuals 
who, have, who come together to have private experiences with God in the same room. We are sharing with one another in a corporate experience of God's grace, designed not only for the benefit of me and Jesus and my walk with him, but for the benefit of the whole faith community. Everything we do when we're gathered and the very fact that you're here and participating, all is designed by God to provide mutual strength and encouragement and upbuilding and stirring up one another. Years ago at a worship conference, I heard Bob Coughlin encourage us to look around the room while we sing, pointing us to biblical exhortations like address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Ephesians 5.19. And Aaron read for us earlier from Colossians 3, where it says teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, our singing is a means of teaching and admonishing each other. And so as you sing, look around the room, make eye contact with other worshipers. We're speaking to each other in this. And I, I, that stood out to me, and to this day, it's, it's a regular practice of mine. If you ever see me doing that, looking around, I'm not just like counting heads. I'm looking at worshipers, because I'm worshiping with you. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. I feel a little bit awkward at first, but if you're looking for encouragement, if you're looking for how we might stir up one another, it's hard to do that with my eyes closed. It's hard to do that with my back to you all. Look around. Make eye contact with each other, even mid-song. We're singing the same things. We're proclaiming the same truths. We're celebrating the same gospel. We're expressing our need for the same grace. It's good for each of us. We can encourage each other even in that. And so I want you to think about our gathering as not merely an act of personal spiritual discipline, which it is at least, but as an intentional means of encouragement that we provide to one another. Just your presence here when the church gathers is a source of encouragement to your fellow Christians. Your participation in the elements of worship that we undertake together is a means of stirring up one another. Like we're being reminded, I'm not on this journey alone. A doubting worshiper may be challenged by hearing the entire congregation proclaim their faith together in a creed or confession. A suffering worshiper may be refreshed by seeing your example of joyful praise. The word of God read and preached may alternatively convict the conscience of the wayward and comfort the conscience of the fearful. Perhaps you serve on the worship team or the media team and your efforts play an even more uh, pointed and specific role in shaping the experience of worshipers as we gather. Shameless plug, we need more people on our media team. So if you're looking for ways to stir up one another and to encourage one another as we gather, talk to Lane about a role on the media team. The question I want to ask here is, do you consider others when you come to worship? Are you thinking mostly, what will I gain from today's time of worship? Or, how can I bless and strengthen someone else's faith in our gathering today? Conversely, as a bit of a segue to the next part, do you consider others when you decide not to come to worship? 
Are you thinking only it's inconvenient or difficult for me to attend today? Or are you aware of how your absence from worship may affect others in your church family? Opportunities for encouragement and stirring up one another that are missed. So he gives this exhortation in the negative in verse 25. He's telling us to consider how to stir up one another, to encourage each other. And in verse 5 in the negative, he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Church members not showing up apparently is not a new phenomenon. Pastors in the first century apparently had to exhort their people to keep coming, to keep gathering, not to give in to various temptations to grow slack or complacent in their commitment to meeting together with the saints for worship. Listen, gathering weekly with your church family for worship is a spiritual discipline, an act of commitment that is basic to the call of Christian discipleship. Coming weekly to the church's main worship service is not what really mature Christians do. It is the basic expectation of all of Christ's people. It should not be the exception that we have most of our members in attendance on a Sunday. It should be the norm. There should not be a hundred-person gap between our membership roster and our weekly worship attendance. I'm not picking on you. This is the way that churches in America generally operate. But it points out something. There's a gap. There's a disconnect between what we think we're doing, perhaps, when we gather on Sunday, and how we live out our lives as Christ followers. I'd exhort you all to make it your goal to be present in worship every Sunday unless providentially hindered. I don't know where that language started. I've seen it in a lot of different church covenants. I've seen it in all kinds of articles and things where people talk about the importance of corporate worship. So I don't know who came up with this until, unless providentially hindered, but I think it's a helpful standard. My plan personally as a follower of Jesus, as a leader of a family, is that I will be present and participating in the church's gathered worship every Lord's Day unless providentially hindered, which means unless God puts an obstacle in my way that makes it impossible to be there, right? Illness, injury, emergency, unavoidable travel, stuff happens, all right? We get that. Life happens. Sometimes we're on a vacation. Vacations are great. No one is telling you you should never go on a vacation. We are suggesting maybe you shouldn't take a vacation from church on Sunday mornings during your regular lives, right? Gathering weekly with the church is the rhythm that Christ has established for his people. And he calls us to keep it up. And he reminds us that we all need that. I don't just need to be physically present here. I need you to be physically present here. I need to hear you singing. I need to see you praising God. I need to hear your voice proclaiming the truths of the gospel as we read the Nicene Creed and whatever else it is we do. I need to be with you around the table as we take the supper together. We all need one another week to week to week to week. This is a means of grace that God has given to his people. It is not a duty. It is not a burden. 
It is a joy, and it is a means by which he meets with us, and he speaks to us, and he changes us. Christ has called his people to be holy, right? To be set apart. The weekly, perpetual, physical gathering of Christians on the Lord's Day may be the simplest and most obvious way that we display to the world our distinctness as God's people. One of the best ways to demonstrate that we live under the rule of a different king and as citizens of a different kingdom is by living out of step with the world's values and priorities. Prioritizing worship, weekly worship attendance on Sundays might be the clearest and best witness to your neighbor that you'll ever have. Why aren't you on the lake or on the soccer field or lounging around the house sleeping in since you don't have to go to work on Sunday mornings? Because I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and our king meets with us and speaks to us every Sunday morning at 1030. Why don't you come with me? Well, the upshot of all of this, I'll state it positively and then I'll state it negatively. The upshot of all of this is that a stubborn commitment to participate weekly in the church's worship gatherings, unless providentially hindered, is the single best thing you can do for your own spiritual life and for the spiritual lives of your family members. If you're leading a family, a mom or a dad or a guardian of some kind, there is nothing better you can do for your children than to have them gather with the Lord's people every single Sunday. I'll state it negatively. Neglect of the importance of the church's weekly gathering, failing to attend and participate regularly is the single most spiritually dangerous thing, habit that you can cultivate. If you neglect to gather with the family of God, where you receive the means of grace that God has provided through corporate acts of worship, then you will almost surely find yourself at some point adrift unmoored from God's word and God's will. A lone ranger faith does not long survive. I want to take you for just a moment as we wrap this up to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Recognizing that the author of this psalm lived in a day where the people had to travel to the temple because that is where God lived, right? That's where his presence was held. So they traveled to the temple for worship. And so this is a song of longing for the place of worship and going to meet with God and his people. We live in a different day. We live under a different covenant. We live under Christ. And now it's the people themselves that are the place where we meet with God. But I want to read some of, these, some of this psalm to you. Verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, 
for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Speaking there of the temple servants. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. We should ask ourselves, do I long for God and his people in the way that this psalmist does? Do I find my heart yearning to be in the presence of God where he dwells, namely among his gathered saints? Would I say truly, like he says in verse 10, a day in your courts, of course that being the courts of the temple, a day gathered with the people of God in your presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. Give me one day in gathered worship to God over a thousand anywhere else. I think this is the heart that the Lord wants for us to have. And there's all kinds of barriers, right? There's all kinds of reasons that might not be where we live, like what we actually feel and experience. And I think it's worth, and this is just an exhortation to you, just ask the Lord about that. Just talk to him about your own heart if you sense a gap, wow, I do not feel anything close to as eager as this psalmist feels about going to church, right? about gathering with the people of God for his worship. If there's a gap there, I just want to invite you to talk to the Lord about it. Ask him to show you your own heart. Lord, what is it in me? What is it in my experience? What is it in current, my current reality that makes it hard for me to feel this way? about your people, and about gathering for worship. And I trust that if we're placing ourselves before the Lord and opening our hearts in that way and asking him to teach us, I trust that this can become the cry of each of our hearts. So that the notion of gathering week after week after week after week on the Lord's day with the church is not just a spiritual duty it's not a chore. It's not a box that you have to check off in order to be a good Christian, quote-unquote. It is a delight. It is joy. It is life to us. I trust that the Lord can bring us to that place and cultivate that in us if we'll be honest with him and with each other. Maybe need for conversations with one another about this. Even just kind of confessing honestly, I don't really feel that way about church, and I'm not sure why. Just invite conversations with one another 
and with the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, the Lord of hosts. The dwelling place is you. The gathered people of God are the dwelling place of God. May the Lord enlarge our hearts to experience and to delight in his presence among his people when the church gathers every week. Let's pray together.